Hello and welcome everybody to episode four of the Beyond Red and Blue podcast. I'm your host, Bo Richards, and with me as always is my co-host, Dan Humphrey. Greetings. Today, I think, uh, today we're going to do a brief discussion about education. Um, I think a little bit of it's coming up with uh, some changes here in Washington State. Um, Trump's been talking about it a bunch with his uh, patriotic history that he wants to be taught federally which i believe is illegal um or at least it's all it's currently state run so i figured this would be a good time to um to just kind of introduce some things about education and then set a time to come back at a later date to tackle it because education is monstrous and there's a lot to it and uh i definitely want to do the due diligence before we um try and tackle the be the bears or you know no, man, we got to solve this all tonight. <laughs> right before dinner. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and I'm hungry, so let's go. No, that, that makes sense. <clears throat> okay, so um, first up on the agenda is, uh, well, it, it's going to be, let's, let's, let's bring up kind of some of the issues that uh, Trump's said about uh, about history and what he wants and in the like, because I, I, I think I understand, like, from a fundamental standpoint, what he's trying to get at. But again, it's it's the messaging. You know, we were talking about this last week and uh, um, we talk about this quite a bit. I think I think you see this on both sides of the aisle, but it's really it's, it's how the message is presented. It's, you know, he's pointing out a problem like there's there's general there, there's there are some issues with, you know, how people want things to be taught and what the motives are for that. And his response is to say that um, America is the greatest and we're only ever going to teach a patriotic version where it highlights how great America is. And it's like, well, I mean, that's like half true. You know, maybe we should uh, also talk about the bad shit that America has done because we have a lot of bad stuff in our history. Like ignoring that is a very bad thing to do. I agree. It's it's all about truth. Um, I'm looking up some of what Trump actually recently said. Uh, let's see. <clears throat> I can't find the whole statement that he made. Um, keep going. I'll uh, I'll bring that up. No worries. All I would add, I guess, until we can talk a little bit more about what he has said, is that. Um... You know, you're right. You you want to, you you want to search for the truth, and you don't want to necessarily sh- sh- uh, lie about historical, let's say, historical injustices in particular. But at the same time, if you only ever focus on the past and don't allow yourself or your culture, society to move forward, that's also not good. And that's kind of what I see with with you know, and it's really it, it comes from. Uh, critical race theory, which we've talked about a little bit, but, and there's differentiations of it that we'll probably get into to, to, um, excuse me, to define so we can understand the differences, but it's the notion that everything is based upon solely upon race. And, um, and there's some truth to that. Like people see race, we're not technically speaking, actually colorblind, but if all we ever focus on is this, the historical oppressions of all the bad and all the bad things that our forefathers have done, there's no room for moving forward and growth as a culture. And like, I don't see how that's actually good either. And both seem 
inherently negative and kind of antithesis to what we actually want to do as a culture to try and heal ourselves, which is the ultimate goal. Like, and that's, you know, what you and I want too, is like, I don't want us to be locked in this mess. I also don't want us to be locked into a past mess that we can never get out of. I want us to try and find ways right. to confront the problems and move forward. Like, let's, let's advocate for some form of exposure therapy, like a psychologist would advocate for, like, let's expose ourselves to the trauma and then let's move, let's slowly and let's move past. Like you don't just get a thrown on your face and then you're over it. Like that's how people actually die. You know, have panic attacks and have a heart attack. You got to work your way through it. And then we can, we can address it as a culture as best as we can. And it may take a while and then we can move past it or to the degree that it is possible to move past it. I don't know to the degree that it is possible, but I assume that there is some degrees that it is. So, um, I would I would look at it more like instead of you know moving past it, it's find a place that you can put it to keep it with you, which is a clunky way of saying you know don't lose the lessons of history. Yeah. Uh, as if we commit to teaching a truthful history, um, then I would even I would even go so far as to say you know it's okay to do that from a I'll say mildly patriotic lens. Sure. Um. But we can't deny the sins of the past. They actually happened and they affect people today. So that is important. But well, <laughs> when when, uh, when Trump made his statement, like you and I had already been talking about how critical race theory and the woke movement is uh, working its way through the education system yeah, and how concerning that that is. So when Trump made his statement, I got about halfway through the first sentence. I was like, oh, cool. And then I finished the rest of the sentence and the rest of what he said, I was like, oh, crap. He's doing the exact same thing, but yeah. the opposite. Um, and I do want to make we, it clarify before we move forward. Um, it's, it's a definitional issue. So, And I think I had actually misspoke on this over the last few podcasts we've done as well. So with regards to the education system, there there is near as I can tell, though I don't have documented this, it just this seems to me to be the case. There is um, aspects of critical race theory that are in our education system, like our K through 12. It, it is in college, it's being taught in colleges, but in the K through 12 system. But the, um, the actual, uh, a lot of what's actually being taught in schools isn't technically speaking critical race theory. It is critical theory, which is different. It, it's not, it's less race focused. Um, and it was then, originally a legal theory, wasn't it? So critical race theory was originally critical race studies or legal race studies, I think is what it was called. Well, I, I critical theory. It was like, it was critical theory, which was a legal framework or ideology. And then critical race theory so came from that, if I understand correctly. Uh, no. So, um, critical theory was, uh, founded by the, um, Antonio Gramsci and a few other, uh, a few other fellows, um, they were part of the, he wasn't part of the Frankfurt school, I don't believe, but there was a couple of Germans who were part of what's called the Frankfurt school. It's a, um, it was a postmodern school from uh, <clears throat> Germany that immigrated during world war II to uh, New York, I believe. I think some of them taught at Columbia and Harvard and in the local colleges and what they were doing in for anyone listening, like I, a, I'm leaving a lot of this out because there's a lot to it, and B, there's still there's a lot I still don't know, so I'm kind of learning it as I go, and that's partly why I wanted to do this definite define this is so we don't get these confused going forward too much. But 
they basically, um, they were, they took what Karl, because Karl Marx, one of the, it's, it's, it's partly Marxist and partly postmodernist, right? And so a big, one of the things they did is they were like, well, Karl Marx suggested that um, there would be a, a violent revolution. That's what he thought would happen is in Western culture, there would be a violent revolution over capitalism and the proletariat would take over the bourgeoisie. Like, But it never occurred. And so they were like, why didn't this occur? And then with this, they also um, were very uh, interested in um, Foucault and Derrida, the French postmodernists, their post-constructualist idea of like power and power dynamics and how everything is based on power. And so they sort of kind of ran with both of those ideas and created what is known as critical theory, um, which is kind of the, it's like the, you know, the, the father of a lot of, you know, of, of critical race theory, of queer theory, of feminist theory, uh, um, of fat studies, disability studies, uh, uh, cultural studies, cultural theory, all a lot of these humanities uh, uh, academic studies are all based fundamentally off of this postmodern um, ethos in this um it, it's often referred to as like a cultural marxism or it people say that or neo-marxism and, and really the reason it's not marxism is because marxism was concerned with uh, class and um this iteration isn't as concerned with class it's much more it's pretty much exclusively concerned with uh, race gender and sexuality Okay. <laughs> um, and then where critical race theory differs, broadly speaking, is is it's it's the focus of race. That's the primary um, a priori axiom of the foundationally of, of critical race theory is is it's um, where does race fit into the equation, essentially. Um, and it was initially that was initially a legal issue. That was our legal study. It was Kimberly Crenshaw and Derek Bell. Um, they're generally considered the mother and father of critical race theory. Derek Bell was Kimberly Crenshaw's teacher at Harvard, Harvard Law, at, at the law school. And they were, and this is actually to give them their due, like they did a lot of really good work to determine like how the law actually benefits, r really benefits blacks or how it doesn't benefit the black community. You know, how we have all the, and this was like in the eighties and how um, we have all these, you know, we have a, uh, I think affirmative action had just started and then we have um the uh, 1964 the uh, uh why am i blanking on the act the um, civil rights act civil rights act yeah all that and the you know the w welfare was created and there was a bunch of other uh, a bunch of other things that came about that you know were supposed to help um you know minorities and in, in the poor in our country and they started to realize that in particular it wasn't actually really helping people the black community they were it was still problems legally and so they applied it legally and then from there it you know it did what, what, what would naturally do and it spread to other areas because it's an interesting theory it's an interesting lens to look at the world in particular with law and there actually probably is a lot of work i think there still is a lot of work that needs to be done with that lens right we still have a lot of in like minority and inju black injustice in particular like they're definitely you look at statistics and it's pretty clear that there's some issues um, whether or not it's all race, I, I think is actually up for debate, though part of the the theory is that it isn't up for debate. It's race. It's race based. Like it's because there's racial uh, because there's racism, these discrepancies show up. Um, so, again, to the degree that that's true, I don't know. 
I'm sure there are other factors that play into it as well because most problems are multivariate. So to claim it's just one problem is almost always incorrect, but um, that's really where- Well, that, you hit the nail on the head right there. And, like, and it's <laughs> So it's much hard. what we talk about, yeah. Yeah, and it's like, it's hard to say that and not like, like feel the backlash, you know, cause this, there's like, there's actual problems and there's big issues, but I, I think it's important to, to kind of s- describe the subtleties there. It's like, no one's saying that race isn't a problem or even the problem. Like it may actually be just the problem. Like it may be the majority problem. I don't, I, how the fuck should I know? But you know, there are definitely other issues. And if we don't look at those issues, we can be blind to other problems that we just may not see. And they may actually have a bigger effect than we expect, but Anyway, so that's the difference between critical theory and critical race theory. And then um, critical race theory in and of itself is filtered into most other social sciences and humanities, in part because we're dealing with people and people have different races, um, or at least as as it would go, race is socially constructed, which I think there's a good amount of truth to that um, versus ethnicity um, and like region of birth. And so because we're flawed, we tend to throw race onto people and then we're biased because we don't like other people, <laughs> you know, like naturally, you know, for, for a lot of people, they're very, very tribal. And so you have legitimate issues there, but, um, and then, so it filters its way into social theory and, um, but yeah, that's the main difference there between uh, critical. That's th- one of the differences. I shouldn't say it's the main one. It's one of the difference between critical theory and critical race theory. And I actually, I think the last few podcasts actually got that wrong. And so that's, that's my, that's my apology there. I, um, as I was learning some more about it, I realized, Oh, I've been kind of meshing the two together and they don't really, really go together. Um, they're, they are technically separate. Um, but anyways, that was a long winded definition. Do you remember it all what you were talking about <laughs> before I went off on that tangent? Uh, I think we were, we were talking about Trump and I did find the uh, statement that he made. Do, do, do. So let's take a look at that. Um, so here we go. <clears throat> Students in our universities are inundated with critical race theory. Mm-hmm. This is a Marxist doctrine yep. holding that America is a wicked and racist nation, that even young children are complicit in oppression, and that our entire society must be radically transformed, Trump said. Continuing, critical race theory is being forced into our children's schools, it's being imposed into workplace trainings, and it's being deployed to rip apart friends, neighbors, and families. Uh, and that's what I've got there for it. Let's see. Do, 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 do. Um, and I'm reading this off of a Vox article, although the quote has been uh, put a bunch of different places, of course. Um, and the article continues, the solution Trump claimed is to restore patriotic education in our schools. He said he'll create a new 1776 commission to encourage our educators to teach our children about the miracle of American history and make plans to honor the 250th anniversary of our founding. Mm hmm. <sighs> he started so, off so well. Yeah. So like up until you <laughs> up until you mentioned that the second part of that, when you were saying you were trying to find the quotes within the article, everything else. Yeah, I'm on board. With, well, see, yeah. I, here's the thing too, is I actually think that 
individuals who are, you know, theorists and activists who critical race activists and things. I actually think that they would hear that if they didn't know Trump said it, they probably would be like, yeah, that's right. They may not agree to it because they don't like Trump and be like, I don't like what Trump says, so I'm not going to agree to it. Maybe, maybe they wouldn't do that, but I would assume that they would read that and be like, yeah, that's true. We, I mean, white fragility, half of what you said is literally in print in white fragility, which is fundamentally based off of critical race theory. And then it is in schools. It is being taught to kids um, completely. And it, it does teach us. They, they might disagree about the divisiveness. Um, I think you'd mentioned that he said something along the lines of like, we're taught to like hate each other, something like that. I'm probably getting that wrong, but it was something to that effect. And that I think that they would disagree with. Yeah, so uh, critical race theory is being forced into our children's schools. It's being imposed into workplace trainings, and it's being deployed to rip apart friends, neighbors, yeah. and so families. that last part they would disagree with. I also think that they would probably um, transpose the words forced and um, input. So instead of it being forced into schools, it's be, it, I think it's input into schools, and I think it's forced into workplaces there is a difference right like because with school districts like the schools roughly speaking they vote on it parents can come and have their say to the effect that that's effective i don't know but there it, it just sort of it's i wouldn't consider that as much force as i would businesses who are like you have to do this training there's been instances of them telling people if you do this training or we might you know you you may not have a job right I have heard instances of that and that so that's more force to me so i that I, maybe i personally am the only one but i i would take umbrage with that wording and i think it's important it's like parents can opt out it's not easy i was looking into this in california it's incredibly difficult to opt out of um things that you don't want your kids to be taught and in particular with say some of this critical race theory stuff or um what it, the, the um what is essentially the sexual education and then the the LGBTQ history um, that's being taught in schools as well, um, which is all fundamentally, broadly speaking, it's based off of queer theory, um, which is separate from critical race theory and critical theory. Um, you can opt out of like sex ed class that teaches about the, the differences between sex and gender and orientation and, <clears throat> and the like. But, um, and I think that they have other classes for you to take because you have to have one to graduate. You have to have a sex ed class to graduate high school or what have you but they don't give you another option for other classes that the teachers are supposed to teach it in so it isn't so much apparently from what i gather it's not a part of the curriculum it's the teachers are being taught this stuff and they're told to teach the kids it while they teach so it mm, isn't is like, that still is that california that's california and so it wasn't super clear so i could be wrong on this but basically the impression i got is like hey teach your subject but whenever you get a chance you need to interject the fact that gender isn't binary or that heterosexuality isn't the only way to do things you need to talk about queer life while you're teaching not so much that you need to integrate it into your curriculum you need to actively like talk about it you need to be a mouthpiece for it um which was which i thought was very interesting that's why i said i i'm not positive that's what it is that's just the impression that i got from reading some of the minutes at some of the um the public meetings the public forums some of the the comments from parents and then um also some of the literature from the actual documents there's like 700 pages so I, I haven't had a chance to go through them all but 
that, that, that seems <laughs> to me to be twice, what, man. Right. And that, that, like I said, I could be wrong on that, but that seems to me to be what's going on. One of the parents in particular complained that she took her kid out of sex ed, but then her kid told her that they were being taught the same thing in history and in math class. And they don't have a way that she can't opt her kid out of history and math are required by the state and there's no alternative. Right. And so she like either has to move them to a new school, homeschool them, or they don't graduate. And so there, there's some opt-in issues, but um, because of that, I, I don't, I wouldn't use the word force there. I would say that it's um, something different. Like it's being imposed upon, like, cause it is, I mean, it, it is to a degree it's an imposition. It also I like, I think could be I like a good imposed. thing. Yeah. I think it could be a good thing too, depending, like it's all in the de- the devil's in the details, right? Like, like with anything, you know? Right. Well, let's, let's unpack a little bit of this. So yeah, I, there's, there's, like, so there's, there's sure. a lot, there's a lot. That's why yeah. I want to do another um, podcast about this. Imposed for sure. I agree with that. Forced. Uh, I don't, uh, I don't take much umbrage with that. However, I think in terms of schooling, it's been more, um, snuck in meaning, yeah. um, parents don't fully understand what these ideologies uh, are. stand for and, and what they're about. Um, so you don't want your kid to be a racist, right? Okay. So we're going to do some training vote. On they, also, they also don't understand what is actually being taught. That was, that was the number exactly. one That's complaint what I'm saying. I yeah. could find in again. I, I read a couple, a bunch of different articles and, and, and went through some forums online where there was a bunch of comments. And so take the comments as you will, because it could just be the people who would complain or complaining and mean nothing, but the number Welcome one, the com- internet. yeah, right. Exactly. So again, grain of salt, but the number one complaint was that parents basically weren't notified. And that actually isn't surprising because like with most things, I think legally the state, ha- the education department has to notify parents what they're teaching the kids. But like with anything else, they don't send you a letter in the mail and an email and a text and give you a phone call and explain exactly what they're doing. It's much right. like, it's much like when you get your, um, your car insurance renews and you get your car insurance paperwork in the mail, you don't, no one reads how their car is covered, but right. it gets sent. And so when you have a, when you have a claim and you find out it's not covered, you're pissed and you're like, what the fuck? Why wasn't my insurance covered? I pay for car insurance. And like, you didn't tell me this wasn't covered. And it's like, well, that's what it is. Is it's like, well, is it the state's responsibility to hold your hand and guide you through this process like a little baby? Or is it your job as an adult to read? And there's like a... That, right. No, yeah, you got you to gotta do the work. As long as the information is available. But on the other end, of the, on, on the other, other, other side of that, because I think that's kind of part of it is like, you know, as adults, we should do that. However, the state doesn't have to, and they de- definitely don't. And, and for the, this matter, insurance companies, they don't make it easy to understand what it is you're reading. Like you oh, no, of course. That's, pull, that's a whole separate issue, man. That's yeah, the iTunes and user agreement. Yeah, it's it's like none of it makes, yeah, nothing makes any sense. <clears throat> and so it's like, no wonder people don't actually read it because A, it's hard to understand and B, it's there's, like I said, the, um, the sex education law, I forget what it's called in California, but 730 pages. 
So wait, are you saying they they did send out information? On... No, I think they sent a link to everyone, like an email was like, "Hey, check this out. We have a bunch of forums." Like they did everything they were legally required to do. Like okay, okay, so they did make an effort to at yeah, least make the information available. Like it took me two hours to find the link, and I googled California like sex ed high school, you know, policy. Like I, I did a whole bunch of words like that to like to be as specific as possible. It still took me two hours to find the on the California like Department of education website to find where it is i even searched in the website in the department of education and still had trouble finding it because it's named something kind of odd that's sort of related to education but wouldn't be intuitive up front it's like health education or something like that like it's got a really it's like slightly tangential and then and then when you open it up it's literally 700 and some odd pages it's not a joke and so it's like who the fuck is going to read 700 pages and remember it of legalese not of like this isn't a Harry Potter book where it's written for a sixth grader. This is written for a doctoral candidate at a law school by sure. doctoral candidates, you know? And so it's like, I get why people are upset because you don't have the time. You're also a parent, you're raising kids, but, and so there's like this line where adults should read this stuff. The government and companies in particular know that they're not going to. And so they do as little as possible to let, the consumer, the parent know what's going on. And then they just brush it under the rug when people complain. And that's kind of fucked, right? That, that's upsetting to see. It's like, well, maybe some parents have some useful information if you would have explained. Like there was some things in California, there was a bunch of books they wanted to use, like five or six that parents finally found. Some parents who have legal experience looked into it and found some books and they're like, this is wrong. I don't remember what the books were, what that was wrong about them, but they ended up getting them taken out. So they're not required reading, but um, most people don't have the time or the knowledge or the patience to, to read through that stuff. And so I'm going to see if I do, so I'm going to attempt to read it, but so we're going to find out in like six months when we do this again, if I, if I, uh, <laughs> if I understood any of it, but. Well, I mean, that's, that's been a problem for a long time in terms of, you know, mm -hmm. legalese is confusing on purpose. And if you can make it long enough that, you know, nobody's going to read it, then they won't. Uh, particularly if you name it something that isn't super clear. Yeah. Um, and so I think yeah. we, we're, uh, we're off on a little bit of a tangent here. We're, we're digressing yeah. a touch, but we can bring it back around. No problem. Please. Yeah. So um, I think at least for the critical race theory aspect of this and what's being taught in schools, um, race is a bit more of a focus. Um, sex is in there as well, of course, with uh, trans and queer and everybody. But the, the, the front man, so to speak, of the issue is race. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I, I really think it's been, it's been snuck into the schools that parents don't really understand what it is they're teaching. And it's so easy to give it the old, uh, you know, save the puppies act treatment where you give it a good name mm -hmm. and people are like, Oh yeah, I'm, I'm going, I'm, I'm for that. I don't want my kids to be racist. Go ahead. And, t and also, I uh, don't want to be the racist parent, you know? Yeah, exactly. And my question is for that is, you know, can you opt out of that as, as, uh, as bad as that would look for yeah. most people? Um, if you really understand what it is they're talking about and, potentially what they're going to do to your kids in terms of their self-esteem if they're white um that it's it's not all sunshine and rainbows like they would uh, want you to believe initially 
Uh, and I'm, I'm also very curious, of course, about Washington State, since that's where we are. Yeah. Uh, because there have been, uh, for I think a couple, two, three years, maybe more, uh, they're doing specific education on these topics um, for the kids. And I, I oh, it, it scares the crap out of me. It's, it's indoctrination. It really is. Um, and that's why, you know, initially <laughs> with the, uh, with Trump's statement, um, you know, talking about their, you know, being inundated and it's a Marxist doctrine, um, and, you know, teaching that Amer America is a wicked and racist nation. I think that's where it starts to, to go off the rails with what they're teaching. Um, yeah, America has definitely committed its fair share of sins. However, first of all, most of those people are dead. Hmm. This is 2020. You know, this is not this is not the 1800s uh, or even the you know 1950s. So when well, you you're say America, about you're forgetting about historical oppression, though. No, no, I'm not not forgetting. I'm just saying when you present this to the people that make up America today, hmm. the people that are alive today, and you say America is, from which, of course, you would infer that uh, if you are white, you are uh, racist. Yeah. That's that's where it, it uh, goes off the rails, in my opinion. Uh, yeah, we, we definitely got to learn all the dirt that America has uh, committed, or at least the... Um, historically relevant and impactful things that have been done. I mean, I'm sure you could spend a lifetime studying all the dirt that everybody yeah, I, in every country has ever done. I mean, you know, I dirt happens. Should, yeah, I think we should too. I think it's important to, uh, to understand as a culture kind of our growing pains, as it were. We've had yeah, some pretty well, severe growing pains. My point, my point being with this is that not, we don't have to teach them everything, everything, everything. I literally, you could get a doctorate on just that. Yes. There would be that much information. So, but the uh, historically important uh, slavery, of course, you know, teach the facts about that, mm -hmm. and the actual structural racism, meaning Jim Crow laws and, and things of that nature, the reasons for the Civil War. Um, dare I say the first Civil War? Anyway, yeah. um, <laughs> right, exactly. You know that that stuff's super important. Uh, you know, Black Wall Street in in, in Tulsa. Uh, I never learned that in school. Yeah, uh, that's historically significant. So those things, all all the items like that. So all I'm saying is, don't get lost in the weeds. But we gotta cover, you know, the the goods and the bads in America's history, and not just you know paint the Pollyanna picture. Uh, but be honest with ourselves yeah. at the same time, at the same time. And here's, this is, this is also what's important is to recognize the intentions of the founders and to do our best to honor the direction that they wanted the country to go in. Um, you know, freedom and liberty for all. Mm -hmm. Well, we, as we have uh, become a more advanced country or, or, or what we open our eyes um, meaning that includes everybody, regardless of the color of your skin, regardless of your sex, regardless of the sex of someone you love, um, that everybody should have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And with that framework, with that goal in mind, that's what we want to do in, in making America better. So not just saying, 
you know, America created the, the original or committed the original sin. If you're white, you're automatically a racist and America hates black people and things like that. Um, you know, one of two things happens. Either you reject that and you say, fuck off, I'm not a racist or, and I think this is happening to a lot of people that, uh, it can be, you know, overwhelming with the sense of guilt and shame yeah, and it makes you feel like less of a person and therefore um, not in the best position to, you know, make America strong and, and have equal opportunity as a country. Um, it, it defeats that purpose, in my opinion. Um, so it, it's a truthful balance with a, an optimistic outlook. And I mean, we, you know, credit where credit is due. Yes, the, the country was founded and built by slavery. It's fucking horrible. Uh, however, America has done a tremendous amount of great things. And we shouldn't forget that. And we shouldn't miss the opportunity to inspire the younger generations mm -hmm. to continue to do great things. Um, and, One you know, thing... maybe, even, maybe even be a little bit patriotic. Yeah, without no. being without having a blind eye to the past. Go ahead. One thing. I'm, this is probably going to be. Uh, I'll try to make this as uh, non-inflammatory as possible. But <laughs> good um, luck. Yeah, thanks. Um, I've been thinking about this pretty much all day, and uh, um. So one thing I think, and I, I really never thought about this much, or really believed it i suppose too until i uh until i read a book called modern tyrants i still need to, to get that over to you so you can read it but um and in modern tyrants it's a it's basically a, a history book about 13 or 15 different tyrants of the 20th century and it's not all like communist or what have you it's there, there there's a wide range of totalitarian regimes in like four different continents and um one of the things that the author pressed upon, and as I was reading through the the book, it, it it started to make more sense to me, though it's an exceptionally hard concept to grasp, is that he actually at certain times would talk, and I believe he talked about this with Mao, Chairman Mao Zedong, um, the uh, Chinese emperor, the, uh, kind of ushered in the Maoist Marxist revolution that killed lots of people there, and the the great the great the great leap and all that that mm -hmm. killed like a hundred million people or something, but. Um, so he was actually revered during his time and a little bit afterwards, even with everything that was going on. And there were a couple of other dictators and I'm forgetting who they are. One of my believe he was the, uh, fuck, I think it was, uh, he was, I think he's the person who took power in Haiti, um, Haiti and, uh, I think it's Dominican Republic is like literally landlocked to them. They're connected and they had a big war and he took power, um, and there might have been one other, but um, one of the things that the author press impresses upon is, is that um, is that the reader has to remove themselves and 21st century morality from the equation, because we're talking about times and places where the morality is just different. And so it's easy yes. for us to look. And that's actually really hard to do because like you're basically what you're saying is you're looking at a country that's in civil war. In our case, for a couple hundred years, we had slavery and there's genocides and you're like, don't judge it. Gen you know, like don't judge the genocide. And that's like hard to be like, well, it was fucking genocide. Like you want to judge it. But 
in a lot of places in I'm kind of saying this with us 400 years ago, 300 years ago as well, in that I think it's difficult to step back and and just say, oh, well, it's morally wrong now. So therefore it's it's abhorrent. And it's like there's some truth to that. Like there is because it, I mean, it, it, well, it's slavery. So like it's abhorrent and bad. But at the time, that sort of thing was very normal. And I think a lot of people, which isn't to excuse it, like I want to be very clear, this is not to excuse slavery, right? <laughs> but for anyone listening, I'm not excusing. I'm just saying that if that's what's normal at the time, people are more likely to get used to it and be okay with it, regardless of how moral it is. And so I've heard people mention before that like the founding fathers, like they, they couldn't have wanted all of the things that America's great, that makes America great because they were slave owners. And it's like, you can't be a slave owner and then want freedom for all and want meritocracy and stuff. And it's like, I, based on the the authors that I'm talking about, his assumption about trying to peel back your morality while you listen to this stuff, because a lot, there was a decent number of these dictators who, even though they're people were in abject poverty and were oppressed and were murdered and systematically hunted down. They still loved him because it was better than what it was prior. And I'm not saying that that is the same about slavery in America, but what I am saying is that if we can peel back a second, the morality that we have and understand that times were just different, that maybe it's plausible that our founding fathers were like, look, this isn't the ideal situation. Maybe it works well for us or for some of us. I don't think all of them own slaves, but maybe there's a higher ideal out there that we can attempt to achieve. Like maybe they were just trying to be better people and didn't quite understand how to fix the problems, but knew that there were things out there that were better. And I don't know if that's possible to do. I don't know if I'm, you know, like I said, that if that's super inflammatory and horrible, if it is, I'm fine to change my opinion on it. But it just seems to me that I think it's important to to understand that these p- people were human and that like us, they do have, they do want good things in life and they do want better for their people. Even if they weren't directly doing it at the time, that doesn't mean that there wasn't an attempt of theirs and that they weren't able to do it. Does that make sense? Yeah. I, I think that's a common mistake to um, judge the figures of the past based on the morals of today and effectively retroactively cancel them. Correct. Um, Which isn't yeah, to say that's... that what they didn't do wasn't bad. Like it obviously wasn't good, but it's a lot different than saying, well, they did bad things. Therefore they couldn't have wanted any good. You know, it's like not necessarily like humans are complex people. Humans do a lot of really fucked up things in the name of good. I mean, you, you yeah. can, you literally can look at the entire bloody history of Catholicism as an example. Right. And, Oh yeah, <laughs> it's very bloody and very disgusting and very corrupt. And that's not even counting the, you know, the sexual assaults with boys and it's all done in what they believe to be the name of good. That doesn't mean that it is good, but you have to understand this is all like personal morality. Like they believe what they're doing is right as do most people when they get into wars and when they do these kinds of things. And so it's, it's a slippery slope to walk and it's a, it isn't a straight black and white line that I guess that would be my bigger point. I, I know I'm saying this all badly. It's actually kind of hard to articulate like out loud. Um, but I do think that it's important to understand that because of the complexity of humans, that humans are more than capable of 
both holding doing very bad things and wanting very good things at the same time right and so to, to claim that our founding fathers didn't want better for themselves and for their for their progeny and possibly even for the people that they did enslave um you, they can they can believe those kinds of things even if they owned slaves i think i think that that's a i think it's an argument to be made for sure in, i in, in fact least, i haven't yeah. even heard i haven't heard anybody say specifically that the founding fathers didn't want any good like they were all just pure evil wanting to enslave anybody black and and i don't know conquer the world or some shit i don't i haven't heard that basically what what i've heard is that uh you know because they were slave owners they're effectively canceled. We don't listen to anything they say. We don't care if they had good intentions. Um, they're just as bad as Hitler and tear down all the statues. Yeah, um, what I've heard specifically is that um, because of you know their proclivities towards doing you know, towards slavery, let's say, um, their founding of the country on these moral values cannot be moral because they are themselves not moral because of slavery which renders basically the founding of the country immoral like so the ideas of freedom and liberty and pursuit of happiness and meritocracy are all foundationally immoral because the people who had the ideas to begin with were themselves immoral due to their um, perpetration of slavery gotcha okay well right. that that is a terrible argument to make doesn't make any sense that is that, that's uh, my point is that it i forget it, it, there's a type of logical fallacy that it is i, I don't remember the name of it but it, it this is it would seem to me that it is because just be just because they're quote unquote doing bad things and or even evil doesn't mean that they can't actively do good things like those two things are they're not independent i mean as, as a as a crazy radical example um one of the first things hitler did when he came into power is he went on a cleaning campaign and he cleaned up all the factories and the schools right now he it's there's an argument to be made that he did that as a precursor to gassing people because he used zyklon a instead of zyklon b to clean the factories in the schools right so he probably was learning <laughs> he was obsessed with cleanliness so like it's not the best example but it did clean up the streets and the schools and the factories and it got rid of all the rodents and the the working conditions were dramatically better like it was a really good thing and he was actively trying to do it there's also an argument we made that he was doing it for similar reasons to why trump does stuff which is for his own personal gain but um but still the, well i, think I the mean so so if you follow that out logically, then that means we can't clean any factories because Hitler cleaned factories. Therefore, cleaning factories is the same as the Holocaust. So we better have dirty factories. And th that, that makes no yeah, sense. Right, exactly. But again, you know, it is a slippery line because it's hard to, I mean, let's face it. It's hard to make an argument that the individuals who were originally responsible for enslaving, you know, a, a good portion of another culture and race could do good things like it's a weird it's a weird argument to have to make and to try and make you know like to be honest um but i don't think those two things are mutually exclusive and i think you can do both right especially because morality if morality is different throughout history it's like at the time that may not have been a more uh, a, a morally untenable position for them like it would be for us 
well, yeah, clearly it, it wasn't. It was it was socially accepted at and, the time. Um, I mean, it's, it's imagine 20, 50, 100 years from now, those people looking back on what we consider normal, what we don't even think about doing mm -hmm. uh, or that we are doing that we don't think about because it is normalized that um, they could look at us and say that we are immoral or we're bad or, or they can make judgments based and they on probably will. their morality. Um, yeah, they will. And, and everybody does it. And it's inaccurate. It's almost like we take the stance that, okay, we're done now. Like right now, now we are perfectly moral. Everybody else was messed up, but we figured it out. It's like, no, but it's a continuum. We will continue to change and evolve uh, socially. So again, exactly. it, it's, it is, it's absolutely critical if you're going to analyze history to understand as fully as possible the context of those times. Uh, I mean, that includes everything. It's it's the morality. It's the the um, the social uh, you know fabric of, what, of what's going on. It is the political climate. It mm. is the economic climate. Like all these things are super important to understand what any given event uh, really meant. Uh, so that's that's just just it, it's it's an amateur way to look at history to judge them based on today's moral values. Well, yeah, and so like I was talking about historical oppression and, and I'm paraphrasing, but broadly it's exactly kind of what it sounds like. It's um, throughout history, this oppression is built up, not only built up, and that's partly what creates the systemic patriarchy, oppressive patriarchy that we have, but it's like a lived experience through the generations. So like you inherit the historical oppression of your 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 grandparents and your your parents your grandparents and you know so it, it it it's it's a something that does only occur within the black community because they're the only community that's been enslaved um and that's their context <laughs> so yeah right and so that's the like, understanding we need to have here's the here's an interesting thing this is a i'm going to posit a I don't think it's that crazy, but I'm going to posit a theory. Okay. Okay. Um, and it's more of like a, a conundrum in my head that I can't quite solve. And I want to see kind of what you think. So on one hand, you have this notion of lived experience, um, which there's some truth to, like we do have experiences and, and to the degree that it's a historical oppression or something of that nature is real. Like I don't, I wouldn't doubt it. Like people, we, if we don't, you know, remember our histories and learn the lessons of our fathers and grandfathers and our mothers and grandmothers like we die i think culturally and so there's some truth to that notion i don't discount that but that lived experience and that is is primary it's paramount and it must be listened to in particular because of where it intersects right um, with, with in terms of like race and gender and the different oppressions that occur there and that's in part why um, black women in particular um, are very centered in the, in the social conversation is because of all the of the intersections there are some of the more they face some of the most oppression um so in like i said there's some truth to all of that but part of the problem the conundrum in my head the theory or whatever that i can't quite figure out is that so on one hand you have you know theorists and academics and activists and children and you know suburban white women who are all talking about this um you know lived experience in this oppression 
and on the other hand, they're mostly the mostly the the academics, but they're in the, the people in power. They're talking about Marxism, and they're kind of talking about both. They're like, here's our lived experience in Marxism, because critical race theory in particular is fundamentally built off of a Marxist tenet. Well, if lived experience is what matters, and you look at Marxism and you discover that Marxism is responsible between 21 and 160 million deaths over the course of like 87 years from the year 1900 to 1987. And then you read a book like the Gulag Archipelago, which is a 1700 page tomb detailing probably a thousand different lived experiences from individuals who were in gulags and talked about the horrors of it and the abject poverty and conditions and the rapes and the murders and stuff. I don't know. It seems to me that those two things are incongruent because you're like, hey, lived experience matters, but part of my beliefs are fundamentally based on a on an ideology that is responsible for a horrifically large number of lived experiences that are terrible. And but those experiences don't seem to matter because I can't understand. That's the problem I'm having is like, do, do you see where like, there's like an incongruency yeah. there? And it's like, I don't think that people, I think people need to read more. I don't think any, I don't think people have read the Gulag Archipelago and then, well, I just don't think they've read it and understand exactly how terrible Marxism is. And so then they hold it next to this, what I think is a very real lived experience and oppression. And they're like, this is how I'm going to get my stuff done. And it's like, so I can feel better about all this bad shit I've lived through. And it's like, look, like, you're pulling from an ideology that has done at least twice as much damage as the oppression that you're claiming in terms of total deaths. Like, if that's even what matters, you know, like, I think slavery accounts for like 30 to 60 million deaths. And that's not the US. That's just the entirety of slavery during the last 300 years, like the Atlantic slave trade, I think, to all to North and South America. And so it's like, from a death standpoint, it's got you beat. And that's not even going to be the main point, because why should it be like, what else is there? And it's like, this is a bad doctrine and ideology. I don't get how you can hold that in the same breath as lived experiences and how paramount, paramount they are. Like, I don't get. I think, I think the concepts are actually a bit separate. Uh, my understanding of when they talk about lived experience, mm -hmm. it, that is addressing, um, figuring out what is truth and yeah. that, and, and it, from their ideology, they argue that there is no objective truth. There is yeah, no which is much more reality. of a postmodern idea than a Marxist idea, but it's right. still it's and see still... that's that's where these blend. So so I, I think that, that concept is not necessarily Marxist. Marxist is more about uh, again to my understanding um, the uh, the struggle of power. Um, originally, it was based on class, but it's all about yeah. who has power and who is being oppressed. Um, so they're, they're kind of separate things that they're blending together, but they're not really, you know, rec uh, reconciling, uh, in my opinion. Well, that's the reconciliation and, that I'm having trouble with is that. Well, it's because it it's not there. So and, yeah, and, don't, don't spend any more time on it, brother. They ain't got it. Um, and but I it, think it's hard because I like, I, I want to find the grains of truth in the issues. And I also, I also would like it so much better if there was like, this is a pretty big inconsistency in my head. 
it's a cognitive dissonance. That's uh, what I mean. It's like the cognitive dissonance must be so massive. And I'm like, that's what I don't understand is we're talking about PhD scholars who've studied this stuff for 30 years who are like ignoring this or maybe I'm just off base, but there seems, it seems to me to be related enough that there's a cognitive dissonance and I just can't get my head around it. I'm like, I don't, you could probably pick a different, a better belief system that doesn't fly in the face of the stuff you're actively saying you believe in. Like, because that's what it does. It's like the results, the applied results of it, of, of Marxism. is so well, the answer, deadly. the answer I hear to that most often is uh, true socialism hasn't happened yet. They didn't yeah. do it right. That's yeah, I mean, you know, there's a couple stupid. hundred people, maybe a hundred million people died, but they didn't do it right. And it, um, but see, and it wasn't like it happened one. Like I would understand if Mao killed a hundred million people and he was the only one who did this. People sure, were like, yeah, it hasn't yeah. been tried right. It's like, Mao Zedong was literally a once in a in a century individual of evil, and it won't happen again. But it didn't happen not once. It happened technically twice in Ru- I mean, you could say once in Russia, but it happened with Stalin and Lenin in particular, both. Then there was Pol Pot, out of, I believe Cambodia. There was one of the Koreas, I forget which one, um, or maybe the Khmer Rouge is Cambodia. I can't remember exactly which. And then it happened also in South in uh, either in Africa in Africa. Um, like, but it's it's just between Mao and Stalin and Lenin and Pol Pot, it's the error bar is, you know, 21 to 160 million. The most commonly cited number is a hundred million. It's probably closer to what it is, but like there's so much undocumented death and people can't find the people that died that it's like five times larger than like the actual confirmed deaths. It's like, are you joking? me? Like nothing. I don't think anything in the history of the world has ever killed that many people. And then the response is, well, it's never been tried properly. It's like, go yep. fuck yourself. <laughs> like, I'm sorry. Like, I hate to be rude, but it's like, no, I just, you know, or, or Marxism isn't socialism. It's like, also go fuck yourself. Like, I'm very well aware of the, the slight difference between Marxism and socialism. It's the exact difference between postmodernism and applied postmodernism, which is what, uh, um, broadly speaking, what social justice is. That's mm-hmm. technically called applied postmodernism, another definition, which is just to say that they're taking an analytical theory and trying to put it into practice. So postmodernism is great in as much as it doesn't devolve into nihilism and social justice is, well, it's social justice, but <laughs> I, I, I just don't, I just don't get the, the disconnect. It, it, the cognitive dissonance is so large that I can't understand how people aren't like, well, maybe we should at least call it something different. Like let's at least lie about it being Marxism so that it takes people a while to figure out that we're talking about an ideology that killed a hundred million people and we believe it could help save America. You know, like, well, I don't, I don't think they're trying to save shit. They're just trying to tear it down. Yeah. And, and I, I don't even think yeah. they're trying to make something new. They just want to get to the tear it down part. And then, uh, that's as far as they've gotten. I, mean, I, I think honestly, I think maybe you're giving a lot of people too much credit. Maybe not everybody. I'm sure there's some some very intelligent folks uh, that are in the uh, you know the, the higher ranks or what have you yeah. of that movement. But most people, most people don't um, know about it anyways. Like it's not. Like, yeah, it's they becoming have no more to look mainstream. Into it. Yeah. Yep. They they have no reason to look into it. They don't have time to look into it. Um, and we have to take into account the incredible power of social pressure. 
you know, we're we're social mm-hmm. beings, and if you're if you're in crowd, if the people that you hang out with and you you want to be part of that group, uh, say that you know this is how it is. The reality is, a vast majority of people are very likely to just agree. Yeah. And maybe if something tickles the back of their brain, uh, they'll just kind of push that out and they won't think about it too much. Um, and oftentimes the response will be rather than looking up alternate information, counter information, just you know, more broadly sourced information, uh, the more common result is that people will just listen to what that group is saying and and only digest that information only get their side of the story story so to speak um and that you can make a at least surface level decent case for it you know Mm -hmm. if you really don't apply critical principles and critical thinking to it it can sound pretty convincing well it's easy Um, yeah i think we've talked about that before but it's and i think that's why you don't see a lot of social dissent just naturally among amongst large groups of people cultures societies or just you know local communities is because social ostracization is a is a powerful motivator Mm -hmm. right like people are individualistic i believe um and they are also very but they're also very social well it's Um, quite literally why cancel culture works yes Um, and and it makes sense i mean in evolutionary sense uh, if you were cast out of the tribe, you would likely die. So it's a big deal to be accepted yeah. by your group. Uh, so that's, you know, that's deep, deep, deep in our psyche. And right now, again, you know, saying the same stuff over, but with, with the methods of communication that we have now, most like are, are mostly speaking about social media, um, the speed and fervor in which a small group of people, you know, the incredibly loud minority um, can make it feel like, um, you know, if you don't fall in line, you're going to be cast out, which ultimately when enough people buy into that, then it's the truth. You know, you're not only canceled off Twitter, but you lost your job and you're publicly shamed and maybe you get doxxed or whatever. Those are also very, very real. yeah. Yeah. Those are real consequences that, that people need to consider. And if you look at the history of, uh, of Russia and the revolution that happened there, there was a large group of people like shopkeepers and, and uh, small business owners that would have to feign going along with the workers' party just because they didn't want to get their place destroyed or burned down or, or, or whatever. Um, you know, Dr. Heather Hyen calls it the don't hurt me wall that we're yeah. seeing now in which people put up all the Black Lives Matter and all the different posters in their shop. Whether or not they actually believe it, who knows? They just don't want to lose their business. Yeah. And, you know, in, in terms of uh, uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you got to look after your for, look after yourself. So it makes sense. Um, but it's not what I would consider the genuine will of the people. They're getting no, bullied by the very vocal minority. This is a uh, slight tangent, but have we talked on the podcast yet about what happened with... Uh, um, a, a business owner here in uh, locally in Washington that um, received a letter in the mail at their personal address for posting Black Lives Matter stuff. Uh, I don't think we've talked about it on the podcast. So go ahead. okay, um, so 
there's a local craft store by where I live, which I won't specify just so no one knows where I live, but um, that uh, it posted Black Lives Matter stuff in the walls, uh, in the windows and things like that. And um, she'd gotten a letter in the mail. I don't know if it was anonymous. She posted it on Facebook and part of it was redacted in the top, like where a letterhead would be. So like where you'd put your name. But um, the letter was basically someone telling her that the town we're in is a pro-blue, you know, pro-police town. And that um, it, it wasn't like overtly threatening, but it was like it was not very subtly, not very subtle. Like it was pretty clear it was a threatening letter, but it, the, the person wasn't like, I'm going to come get you or anything. It was just, you know, how dare you do this? Like you need to watch what you're doing. And then at the end, they were I forget the exact wording, but they were like, you know, you're going to. You're going to want to be really careful. Basically, like I said, it was like a, a fairly, su- yeah. it's like a fairly subtle threat, you know, and, yeah. um, and it, I, I did, I said, it's a bit of a tangent, but I, I couldn't remember if we talked about it. And I thought it was very interesting because, you know, like I've been very vocal personally, um, on the podcast about not liking Marxism. I just, I don't like Marxism at all. I don't like people. I don't, I don't like people and individuals and groups who, identify with Marxism. I have a hard time with that. And that's the main reason why I have a hard time with the Black Lives Matter movement. It's actually pretty much the only reason. I mean, there's some other goals that they have that I am concerned with, but it's it's the Marxism in particular by the founders that I have a problem with. And even with that, um, you know, they're, they're stated Marxists. They stated that they're Marxists. Even with that, someone should have the right to put whatever the fuck they want in their windows to support whoever they want. I don't care. And it it was so infuriating to see that sort of thing occur where they get a letter at their home addressed to them and their husband who doesn't actually, I think, own the business. I think it's just her. I think he helps, but, um, and I, I just, I couldn't believe the gall of this individual to call someone out for a preference. Like, like I, I have such a hard time understanding that even if he disagreed, like hang stuff in your windows, like who cares? Like people are actually dying. Like I'm fine for you to support that. I don't have to agree with the movement, but that doesn't mean I want people to die. Like hang your stuff, show your support. That's great. People shouldn't write threatening letters and send them to your home. Like, are you well, fucking people joking? shouldn't do a lot of things. <laughs> yeah. And it, but like, it was, it like really got under my skin. Like I, I was really angry about it. Like I just, I can understand going to a protest and counter protesting or like, you know, we talk a little bit about stuff we don't like that other people would find divisive or offensive even, you know, like saying that I have a problem say with the black lives matter movement is a very divisive thing to say right now. Um, but it was just one of those things where it's like, are you fucking joking me? Like you have nothing better to do than to type up a letter and make it as threateningly non-threatening as possible. Like, like it's overtly, like the subtext is so threatening. It's it's appalling to me. And like, they really didn't do much of a threat in the text. Like they did a good job typing it out if that was their intent. And it's like, you got to let people do what they want to do. Well, that's, <laughs> I think that that particular event, I mean, I agree. First of all, of course I agree, but, uh, that's pretty tame compared no, to what is. is becoming really commonplace now. I'm sure you've seen the videos of uh, 
people eating lunch in, in some outdoor um, uh, oh, wait, area in a restaurant and the, the mob comes by and they demand that everybody put up a fist in solidarity with solidarity with Black Lives Matter. Yeah. And uh, this couple refused to just because, no, <laughs> you're not going sure. to force me to go along just yeah. because you're a mob. And invade um, my space and yell and yeah. possibly, you know, just ruin my day. Like, go away. Well, and it, I mean, and they, if it were me, I would have taken a physically defensive stance. They were getting up in their grill. This poor lady and, and I think her husband were just, you know, sitting at a table trying to have lunch and these people are starting to crowd around them. And that goes really quick from, you know, uh, sharing your opinion about something to threatening my personal safety. That changes yeah. the dynamic of everything. And yeah. that line's getting crossed on a you know, regular basis and they are, you know, literally trying to force this ideology onto everybody, mm -hmm. whether it's, you know, a, a, a public display such as that, or whether it's mandatory training, um, they're trying to force the ideology onto everybody. And uh, yeah, that, I, that's not I a just, good approach. No, I think I've mentioned this before, and I, I tell this to everyone I know pretty much like, I think people should have their own opinions. I actually truly believe that. And I, I there's very few, if any, opinions that people could have that will make me never want to talk to them again. They're, I'm sure they're out there, but it's if you and I disagree on something that isn't a game a game ender for me. Like, okay, like even if, let's say, hypothetically, even though I don't like Marxism and I don't like Marxists, if you were a Marxist, we would still be friends. We probably would still be doing this podcast. I would still grapple with you. I would fundamentally disagree with the ideology that you hold, and I probably would give you a little shit for it when it came up, but because I think it would be deserved because you would be a <laughs> Marxist, but and you, you know, but you would disagree and we would talk about it and maybe you would get a little heated, but like I would still have a conversation and be like, look, let's because maybe part of what you like about Marxism is maybe the one good thing. Right. And then maybe I can help you understand that it isn't really Marxism that you like. It's whatever it is about Marxism that you find good, which is separate, right? Because it doesn't have to be tied in intricately to the, th to, to the ideology itself. But I think people get so caught up in, if you don't agree with me, you're a bad person. And yeah. that's just well, not you know, true. I, I think ironically, in a way, at the higher level, um, that statement and, and how you feel are very similar. And here's what I mean by that. Um, there's an important difference in how you you know think a person should run their life and and who you want to associate with as an individual mm -hmm. and and you can have opinions about that that's that's one thing and that's important then there is also the understanding that particularly because we believe people should be able to do what they want and say what they want people are going to do and say some things that we don't like we don't agree with yeah and they're going to have these views but still they need to have uh, the ability to have those views, uh, to express them, obviously without hurting anybody. Um, all of which is to say there's a difference between the framework we create for the society to operate in, what what everybody has to do, uh, and that's you know the laws that we write and things like that. Mm -hmm. And then there's the the shoulds. There's the my opinion on how one should live their life. 
Yeah. And I think you're doing it wrong. The issue most at hand to me is at the higher level of, you know, what are the laws that we're creating and, and what's this framework that we're going to insist everybody stick to. And then within that, believe what you want, do what you want. We can have opposing, opposing opinions uh, and, and that's all fine. Um, and I just bring that up to like, I try to remove myself from those opinions on what somebody should do personally when it gets, you know, heated or uh, just gets as blown up as it is right now uh, versus, um, okay, that particular action is not okay. Regardless of, of what you believe, yeah. that's not okay. That can't be allowed. Um, so I'm trying to focus on, you know, what is allowed on a, a societal level versus what my opinions are on, on how somebody views life and, and their philosophy and things like that. Um, what, what has me most concerned is what is being insisted upon and turned into, you know, legal doctrine Yes. versus just people sharing their opinions about, you know, their philosophies on life and things. If they're forcing those philosophies, that is where we may need to, um, you know, specify the the legal um, do's and don'ts of that situation. It's interesting. We we talk a lot about like the differences. We've talked at least a little bit about the differences amongst people and the differences amongst uh, like Democrats and Republicans and in, in generalities, because broadly speaking, humans are more the same than they are different. But you can pull, pull out things about conservatives and about um, liberals that are by and large true, um, you know, temperamentally. And one of those is generally speaking, conservatives are much more concerned with borders around pretty much anything, but they're much more concerned with borders. They tend yeah. to be more neat and orderly, um, maybe have a cleaner desk or bedroom, you know, small things, more OCD about locking the door. Um, they, they want clear rules and laws established, generally speaking. Whereas liberals are um, less concerned with with borders and they want more um, creativity might be a way to think about it. Uh, more freedom might be a way to think about it. More chaos would be another way to think about it. They don't they want to be unrestrained. Again, broadly speaking, and you can kind of see this play out in, in, in our actual politics because conservatives are they're much more about restricting and they, they, they put laws in place. They, they want more laws and and they want to um, though and then generally and then. The um, immigration is a good example of this. They want to close the border. Is a build a wall. That's a great example, right? A pretty loud example. Whereas liberals generally want to let everyone in, and they want more freedom. Um, what I find very interesting is that when it comes to speech, however, the opposite of that is very true. Um, and there's other parts of politics where this is also true. Like when it comes to governmental oversight. Um, generally speaking right like republicans want less government interference in particular with business and democrats want to control um and so you, and you see this with free speech as well they're very intolerant with speech they want a lot of borders around speech they want to consistently take bad words and put them into a box lock it up and throw it away and i think that's kind of a newer phenomenon actually i do that's too not as much the, of a, a traditional democratic view no but it's but, it's currently accurate and that's kind of the thing, though, is that temperamentally it doesn't really seem to fit. And but I mean, it can. I guess I'd have to think about it for a second. I can see a way where temperamentally 
individuals who were more prone to be, say, liberal would also want to restrict taste speech because they're empathetic, generally. More, more empathetic, they're more prone to, say, negative emotion or to feel or compassion. And so they don't want hurtful things to be said. So it does kind of make some sense. But it's also very intolerant. Like straight up, it's just intolerant. And and maybe there's a reason for that. I'm not saying that there isn't, like because people say some pretty bad things. But that doesn't negate the intolerance of it. And I've always found that is a very interesting thing because what I think freedom of speech should be roughly, um, to use a metaphor, is instead of a clearly defined box, it should be a loosely defined, not square, but like the outline of a pond or like a lake where it's, you know, it's got, it's circular, but it's got 30 different edges and kind of moves and kind of sifts through, 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 through history and through culture and doesn't have a defined edge any place because it can constantly be pushed on. Right. I don't think you ever want to like take a border and make a hard line and say, Nope, not this direction. You can't go here. You want people to bump into the borders of free speech and to push it. And so maybe you push it too far one way and then another way self corrects. And then you come around and you want culture to do that. So people can say stupid shit and then they can get socially corrected for it. You don't want to take all these bad words and throw them into a pile or throw them into a locked box and sink it into the bottom of the ocean and say the world's perfect now. Because you know damn well that as soon as we ban all the quote unquote bad words, all the 13 year olds in the country are going to come up with more bad words because they're 13 and they're going to want to make fun of people. Right. And then all the people. I, I, I think all of that should be allowed. I, for me, exactly. it's actually, it's a very clear line. There is a, a small number of things that can't be said. You can't incite a riot. You can't yell fire yeah. in a theater, things like that. Uh, and that's for the physical safety of people. Beyond that, that. That's fair. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's fair. Beyond and that's the that, ill-defined line I'm talking about. Like, it is like there's a couple for safety. You want a couple of things. I consider that a very clearly defined line. Sure. Um, but beyond that, anything goes. And you do not, you do not have a right to not be offended. Yeah. Um, that is that is something that you can legally be an asshole. That is perfectly legal. Um, maybe not advised, and you likely get socially corrected. But when it becomes either the actual law or the de facto law because of people don't want to get canceled, uh, that's when there is no longer free speech, and that is so dangerous. And I, I think most people don't understand uh, how powerful it is to be able to control a population's language. Um, and and that, yes. that cannot be infringed. Um, it, it should always be legal, although ill-advised, to say the N-word. Uh, it's a terrible thing to do, and I don't think anybody should do it, but we can't make it illegal. Uh, I feel the same about, you know, some of the, the nanny laws, like, you know, seatbelt laws and helmet laws. Um, I, I disagree with those laws. I still think everybody should wear a helmet when you ride a motorcycle. Everybody wear should wear a seatbelt seat yeah. when you're driving a car. Absolutely. I do it every time. Um, but I don't think it should be a law. Because if you choose not to and hurt yourself. Social correction. Well, it doesn't really hurt anybody else. And it, you know, yeah. otherwise that infringes on your rights to choose mm -hmm. what you do in your life. For right. no good reason. 
Um, it, it, you know, I don't think the government should be there to save me from myself. Yeah. Um, so it, it's, if we break that seal, if we cross that line in terms of free speech, where we no longer allow people to say things that have nothing to do with physical safety, um, or say the physical safety of others, your own physical safety, if you say the wrong thing to the wrong person, uh, you know, you may no longer be physically safe, but that's on you because you responsibility. Bear. Exactly. You chose to say it. So, you know, you, uh, you are free to say what you want and, but you are not free to escape the consequences of what you said. Well, and that's, that's um, a big part of the rights and the responsibilities we always talk about is that, you know, I understand that saying that people should have the right to say divisive things can be hard to bear, to swallow for a lot of people, but because it, bad things, saying bad things sucks. Like no one likes to hear bad stuff. But I'm also saying that those people should have the res, should also bear the responsibility of that. I'm not saying you should just be able to say say the n word or any other word that would piss someone off. And there's no consequences, right? Like I'm advocating for being able to say that stuff. I'm basically advocating for people to be adults. I'm advocating for you to say something stupid as an adult and then face the repercussions like an adult, not like a two year old. Or whatever age parents right. don't spank their kids. I don't think parents can spank kids anymore. But nah, you know, I can't spank them anymore. Whatever, whatever it is that replaces spanking in the 21st century, if if that kids need to grow up, people need to grow up and be like, look, I'm going to say something dumb right now, but if I get punched in the face, like I'm willing to bear that responsibility. That's how people have yeah, to approach it. I think part of why this has gotten uh, so out of control, frankly. And again, we're coming back to common themes, but the internet and social media, because mm -hmm. that is an anonymous medium, yeah, the anonymity that one gets online means that you do not have to bear those social consequences that you would had you told someone that to their face, whatever it is, yeah. you call someone an N-word to their face, there's going to be repercussions. Um, but if you spout that online, Nobody knows who you are, so you can get away Not with him. it. And, you know, 25-ish years of that, however long the uh, internet has been in uh, reasonably full swing, um, that has created a, a, a warp in the socialization and ability to communicate with people. Um, yes. Yeah, without, without having that social feedback. Um, and even more so now with COVID, as we're physically separated, um, all of the social cues that you get when you're in the physical presence of a person are really, really important to the communication. We've evolved to detect these things, mm -hmm. um, and whether or not we are even consciously aware of it, uh, you know, if you get a vibe off of somebody or your spidey senses are tingling, uh, you know, that's all for a reason. Yep. Yep. Um, and yep. It's important that 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 piece of the communication is available. But when we strip it down to just, you know, text or, you know, now video calls and stuff, it's lacking important features and it's incomplete. And, and we're seeing the result of not having that. Um, so technology is a bit to blame for that, but I, I think we need to find a way to maintain the core of what it is to have free speech. And, yeah, just not, not let that go. 
don't uh if, if that slips through our fingers we're fucked then yeah we're we're in bad shape it's already you know it's happening in canada they don't have free speech and it's causing problems yeah so and the bottom line in america is uh grow the fuck up <laughs> thank you good night yeah read your history i don't care how horrible it is also read the gulag archipelago because that book is horrific and terrifying to read um have you read that dan i'll let you borrow it um i uh, i got the audiobook and i think i'm about like halfway through it and it was okay. it was just super heavy and i had to you know go yeah, on it is. stuff and i haven't gotten back to it yet it's heavy but it's yeah. it's like horrific like it, it's yep. just it, it's like being it reminds me of like a scene in a movie where someone like punches another person to death, but then they punch them like 20 times too many, you know, like they bash their face in, but they right, keep punching yeah. them because they're like angry and enraged. Overkill. That's what that, that's what that book is like after, after like the 30th page, it's like, oh, I get it. And then there's like 1700 more pages if you buy the, right. all three books. That's in a nutshell. That's why I dropped off. I was like, okay, yeah. I get the message here. <laughs> I bought the abridged version and it took me six months to read it. And it's like, Oof, yeah. I mean, I was reading it like before bed, so it was like I'd be ready to go to. I mean, actually, so you Sweet laugh. Dreams. Like I actually, it put me to sleep in twenty minutes. Like it was, I, I could actually fall asleep to reading it, but I only read twenty minutes a day, so it took a long time to get through. Right, but yeah. had I read it during the day, I probably could have got through it faster. But yeah, so yeah, America, grow up, um, take some responsibility. I think you'll be better for it. Um, also, learn your history. Understand that. The fucked up things that humans have done learn from that and maybe try not to be an asshole all the time you know yeah. maybe that's maybe we should start there let's just grow up and not be an asshole and that means everyone that's that's not that's not gendered right as ladies too don't be assholes yeah right just that's good advice <laughs> it's, it's gonna be okay we're gonna be fine we've made we've made it through i think worse things as as, as a species but we got to communicate and we got to grow up and we got to take some responsibility for our actions. And as an, as individuals and as groups, you know, it, it needs to be both. It can't be one or the other. And, uh, anyways, that's all I have. That was my tirade. Cool. 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 I also do think I got to jump off here soon. So I'm getting okay. hungry. No problem. No problem. Let's, uh, if you want to wrap it up. Yeah. So, Thank you all for listening to episode four of Beyond Red and Blue podcast, where we talked a little bit about education and mostly about patriotic history. <laughs> 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 Fucking Trump. Yeah. Please uh, like, subscribe, download the podcast, listen to it, uh, ask us any questions that you have. Ultimately, our goal is to learn more and to try and discover the truth, uh, whatever that may be. Um, we're always willing to learn and listen and uh, change our opinions if need be. So no question that can be asked is going to be too much. So uh, let us know what you think. Let us know anything you want to talk about. And um, we'll see you guys soon. Yeah. And and don't forget to push the conversation forward. You know, keep yes. saying it. You know, do your own podcast, even if you don't publish it. Or mainly just have long-form conversations. You know, if you disagree with this podcast, talk about it with somebody. Have them listen to it. And, talk and about talk it with about, us. We'll bring you on. Yeah. Yeah. But just keep the conversation going. Um, try not to just uh, listen and think about it and not talk about it. But it's these conversations that I really, really think are critical at this time 
uh, that we have, you know, alternate views on what's going on. Don't mm-hmm. just uh, don't just swallow what you see on your screens, but have conversations with you with people that you actually know, and uh, and hopefully we can figure this stuff out. Sweet. All right, everybody, have a uh, have a beautiful night or afternoon or day, whichever it may be for you, and we will catch you next time. See you, everybody. <laughs>